Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, and the author of Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. If you'd like a signed copy, you can order one from the Margate Bookshop. They deliver nationwide. Today's guest is a writer I have been trying to get on this podcast before it even was a podcast, Atega Iwagba. Atega is the founder of the platform Women Who, the author of Little Black Book, Whites on race and other falsehoods, and the brand new book, We Need to Talk About Money. As I say in the episode, I have been longing to read this book from the moment that I found out he was writing it, and it has been worth the wait. It's not a dry guide to personal finance. It's an intense, emotional, profound and personal exploration of the force that governs our lives and our relationship with race, class and career. But we also talked about Gerald Durrell and Enid Blyton. Enjoy. Thank you so much for making the time to do this. I've been longing to have you on the podcast, as you I've know, been longing to since come before on. we started. So I remember you messaged me before it even launched because I have been waiting for your brilliant book as well for a long time, and it was so it's more than worth the wait. And Thank you. well, it's just so brilliantly and wisely written, and so thought provoking, but also comforting isn't quite the word, but it, it, it that feeling of all of the issues of capitalism and every emotional and social aspect that's sort of tied up in our lives and everything where you think, oh no, it's just me and I've got to, you know, think harder and work smarter. And you say, no, the system is flawed and this is Mm -hmm. why. And especially the chapter on your time working at Vice and how awful that was. I'm so sorry that all those things happened to you there. Oh no, it's not not your fault. But I think that even now there are so many people who are doing that work. I mm. think that's changed over the last year. I hope for some people it will have changed the better, but people thinking, why can't I, I get this right? And it's a systematic problem. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That's how I felt. I felt like it was a failing on my part, the fact that I was going from job to job, always having a horrible time, not feeling particularly smart, not having my ambition recognised and I've you know I've always been a very ambitious person so by the time I left advertising which was after five years of doing it I was just completely lost like I I, I did not know what to do next and what the solution was and it was such a painful and like desperate time for me so I really sympathise with anyone who's going through that at the moment. I mean obviously everyone must read your wonderful book but are there any other books that you've read that brought you any kind of inspiration or reassurance or books where you just you felt seen in the in the workplace and in that sort of the the capitalist dilemma either fiction or non-fiction? Yeah do you know what I really felt galvanised by um, She Said which was published by the two New York Times journalists who broke the Harvey Weinstein um, story back in 2017. And they then published this book, which, you know, went on to win all sorts of awards and become a bestseller about the process of reporting that story and how they made it happen, because they obviously had to go up against a lot, you know, a very powerful man with a lot of resources, a lot of friends, a lot of money, a lot of lawyers and a lot of very scared and vulnerable women. And first of all, it was sort of a masterclass in investigative journalism and and the ethics of it and and how 
you get sources on the record and and it was it's just really fascinating to read and i think anyone working in media or journalism should read it as an example of sort of best in class practice but i just found it really galvanizing to hear accounts where names were named and where people really did go on the record to hold people to account you know i don't name individuals in my book because for my own reasons i i'm not particularly interested in 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 naming individuals but i do name companies that i worked at and institutions um because i think a lot of those issues were broader and cultural but it was something i considered you know how to approach that and reading that book she said really affirmed for me that i was on the right path in choosing to just be really honest and um to not worry about who i might offend or burning bridges you know so that was that was a really interesting book i was really moved by your passage about emotional labor and how we have mislabeled that and what you know that everything is emotional labor but what you were saying about this effort of presenting one a happy face and not having not being able to rely on the kindness or you know civility or you know decency of the people that you are supposed to serve and I guess I was thinking about how that is so sort of baked into us you know with what you were saying about the naming of of places and the you know making certain experiences very explicit and specific and I think you know there have been times where I felt the same it's like well I'd be so nervous of saying this out loud because I'd fear consequences that I have Mm. to kind of not lie at all but sort of dissemble and conceal and the courage it takes to I suppose to trust yourself and you know be able because it's so much it's part of the you know it's being able to talk about your experience and going even further with it and really making it so clear where that happened and the the sight of all that I think and I feel like you know when we say brave that's overused but I think it is brave I think it's really courageous and really inspiring and I think you know your work has galvanized me thank you I'm really glad and I I definitely feel like one of my intentions in doing that and making that decision is to galvanize other people whether they're women or men or people you know anyone who's faced mistreatment in the workplace to not internalize and absorb it and you know, I think it's really this received wisdom that you shouldn't badmouth former employers. And in certain situations, that might be the case. But this isn't just slagging someone off. It's bringing to light a culture of mistreatment and harassment and sexism and racism. And I don't feel like I owe any of these companies anything. And I think part of the reason that these companies and the individuals within them continue to get away with treating people like this is because people are often too scared too nervous about speaking about it openly and you know if i was still working in advertising i might think twice i might have thought twice about you know writing this book but i consider myself quite lucky in that you know i'm in a different industry now i'm self-employed so i'm not beholden to any one institution or company and i feel like i have at least right now, I feel like I have enough agency to do this and, you know, to not worry about burning bridges. I always joke, you know, let the bridges I burn light the way. So uh, it's, yeah, it was in some ways, it was a very easy choice, but I obviously had to consider potential ramifications, but I felt like I could uh, deal with anything that comes up. And I hope the people who read it and the companies who read it feel ashamed. I hope they do too. And lucky is such an interesting word for you to use because, you know, from where I'm standing, this is absolutely hard work and talent. You know, I see no luck. I see a brilliant woman doing brilliant things. But obviously, I think there's an element of good fortune with anything. And there are plenty of hardworking, talented people who don't get it, but that you have created a a way of, of working independently that works so well for you. But also it's so interesting and so depressing that exactly what you're saying about, you know, being an entrepreneur and the sort of girl boss culture and like, no, no wonder that looks so attractive when, you know, right. where else are we meant to go? Where, where could we, but it's not right either. I think that we feel as though being self-employed is our only option. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I feel very grateful, as you say, that I found a way of working independently that works for me. It's not something I take for granted 
at all. You know, I recently, over the weekend, I, I wrote an article for The Guardian about toxic workplaces. And when I was researching it and speaking to people for it, I just found myself thinking, God, I... I, I do feel lucky, you know, I, I feel very fortunate. I wanted to talk, I suppose, a little bit more about your relationship with books and reading. And sure. I think another thing that I've always understood from, you know, reading interviews with you, I'm a huge fan of your, your newsletter. And I Thank love you. every single thing that you recommend that I was something that I want to read that stays with me. But I get the impression that reading is something that you were you were brought up with and that your family wanted it to be important to you and they really really valued it so what was your relationship like with books as you grew up what were the first books you reached for <laughs> I was such a bookworm as a kid and a teenager and there's a bit you know I, I certainly don't read as much now as, as I used to back then which is something that I always feel really quite sad about but I think something about going to university and just like having to read these reading lists week in week out slightly not the pleasure of reading out for me but you know I do still love to read but yeah as a kid I was desperate to learn how to read because I have two older sisters so they learned to read before I did and I just pestered my mum you know it's like teach me how to read which obviously she was only too happy to do so I was sort of she taught me to read at home before I went to school so I was sort of reading by the age of three and by the time I got to school I kind of say in the book the teacher's would bring out books for us to read during story time. And I'd, I'd be like, read that, read that. And they were like, okay, what, what do we do with her? Um, so I loved reading and, you know, my parents really, really encouraged that. They used to buy me books all the time. I remember there was this one series, it's by Enid Blyton. And I always wonder whether people have heard of this series because everyone's heard of the famous five. And then there's another group that's sort of the seven but no one has heard of the five find outers and I always bring that up. Have you heard of it? I know the five find outers and dog, which yes. as much as I love dogs, I always feel like the inclusion of Timmy the dog in the famous five, he didn't bring much to the party. No. And a sort of pedantic linguist, the five find outers and dog. I remember that. And I used to so my dad would basically bring one home for me every, you know, couple of weeks. So I think there's a series of about maybe fifteen. I think I probably read all of them and oh my god I used to race through them and like my sisters would make fun of me they'd be like you're not even reading properly I bet you're just pretending to read because I'd read so quickly I'd get really annoyed but you know I loved those but I loved series so I loved that I loved the Chronicles of Narnia I remember I remember borrowing those from the school library and sort of like hassling the librarian when the version that I wanted was you know already out on loan and then Obviously, I was totally into the Harry Potter books as well, you know, dragging my mum to the shops on the first day that they were releasing. Because you remember that was like a real event. Um, yes, at midnight, people yeah. would start queuing up. Yeah, I never did the midnight thing, but I did always get the books on the first day that they came out. And yeah, it was such a joy. And as I say, my parents really encouraged me to read. I remember uh, a family friend who was kind of moving country and, and had some kids who were a few years older than me he'd amassed this huge collection of children's and YA books and he just kind of said to my parents do you, you know do you want them and so he brought over boxes and boxes and boxes of books and for years it was basically like I had my own personal library at home I never got through all of them but I would literally just kind of go rifling through it was like this floor to ceiling shelf and just pick out a new book to read so I was definitely really kind of indulged in that sense, which I'm oh, really grateful for. I bet you're in heaven. Yeah, and I, I love really that, was. that everywhere you went, you were like, no, I've read all the books there are to read. And that yeah. is what it took to finally have. Because I think there's something really thrilling about knowing I will die not having read everything I want to read. And sometimes I feel a little bit heartbroken, but mostly mm. I think that's the world I want to wake up in. There mm. All that possibility is before me. I think I still have this vague idea in my head that at some point in the future or like in the next couple of years I'm going to have like a reading sabbatical where I catch up because I accumulate books faster than I can read them and then things go on the pile and then they get bumped off by a new book and so the to, to be read list just gets longer and longer and longer and I'm you know even still quite selective about what I put on it because that feeling of overwhelm. Like there, there is quite a lot of guilt, I think, for me now associated with reading, especially as between having friends who are authors, being sent books to provide quotes for, and also having to read various books for my own work, for my own podcast, for my own book research, actually just selecting books that I want to read for pleasure 
I very, very rarely get to do that. And that's not to say that the books I end up reading for work aren't pleasurable to read, but there is always a bit of an aim or an agenda there, which is that I need to read this because X, Y, Z. But in terms of just reading, you know, a review of a book or, or seeing a new book out and thinking, oh, I'd love to read that. I so very rarely get to read those books without purpose. Um, and I think that's another thing about the pandemic, because the time I would get to read those sorts of books purely for pleasure was when I went on holiday. And so I haven't been away for you know, a couple of years now. So I'm, I'm, I'm really missing that and, and hope I get to do that soon. That headspace to do it and the overwhelm. I love Mary Wesley, who was very popular in the 90s. And there's something really luxurious and makes me really decadent and giddy about reading something um, that was published 30 years ago by someone who's died, who's not yeah, expecting definitely. me to give them a quote. Exactly. That's like pure indulgence. And I do think that when I'm doing that sort of reading, I feel a tiny bit guilty. It's so strange. Like I've, I've, you know, come into this job of being a writer because I love books and, and I love reading, but it's also in a way, similarly to, you know, how things become at university, it's made reading sometimes into a bit of a chore, which is quite odd. And the thing that I find myself doing as well, which is just so, oh my God, I'm like, take a learn to read purely for pleasure, but I'm very much analysing craft now as well and sort of mentally sort of reviewing it or making edits or you know I might have changed that or hmm, that line could have gone you know which is just such like it's just not I mean again because I'm kind of trying to become a better writer myself you know I think as everyone says in order to be a good writer you have to have to read a lot and read widely so I am also kind of trying to absorb lessons as I read but I definitely want to kind of reclaim I think reading for pleasure without agenda and that's something that is very much on my mind. Is there anything on your to be read pile that is going to bring you pure pleasure do you think that you're anticipating in that way? So I have never read any Elena Ferranti and I was sent a copy of The Lying Life of Adults the other week and it's not you know for any any end you know I was just sent a copy of it and just the first couple of sentences it's something like you know my father told me I was very ugly or something like that and it's about female beauty which is a topic I'm really interested in anyway but I you know I want to I want to hop on the Ferrante bandwagon um you know I feel like that's a real kind of gap in, in in my knowledge and I could just tell immediately like I was like that's the sort of book I would take on holiday obviously I'm not going on holiday but I thought this is the sort of book that I just just want to read just for my own pleasure I don't necessarily feel the need to get involved in whatever kind of discourse or reviews are going to appear once it's actually released I just want to read this because I've heard such wonderful things about her writing ability so I think that for me is the next book on my reading list that's purely for pleasure. I loved the Neapolitan book so much and yet I've not read The Lying Life of Adults and I would consider myself a Ferrante fan which just goes to show how the tyranny of the TBR. Yeah, um, exactly. But what I love so much about the Neapolitan books is that, you know, it's they evoke a feeling and they're uncomfortable, but uncomfortable in a way I sort of felt very mm. comfortable in. And I think they were initially, you know, female friendship. Oh, how lovely. No, it's... <laughs> envy and toxicity and the, just the claustrophobia and the the sweatiness of Naples and the the way she observes class mm. and I don't want to spoil too much but there's a a wedding and I think she's so interesting and wise on what money means mm. and what money means to different people oh god I need to I absolutely need to go and read this now this is like catnip for me and again it's really great because it's about this idea that learning and education can lift you up and transform you and, and take you away but also it can sometimes estrange you and the resentment of the people who don't have that or don't want to engage with that but also mm. that obviously it's for lots of people it's it's not even a choice to to resent that and the way that um Lonely the heroine is she's given an escape route but she's cursed with this not belonging because of the choices she makes and her best friend Lila and sort of what she marries into and she's got this very sort of like temporary flashy immediate wealth and also a sort of a suggestion of ill-gotten gain sounds a bit dramatic but a sort of shadowy not quite local gangstery scene but I have a 
a Glaswegian friend who told me the word pajink, which is anything that's quite grand but quite flashy, a sort of very like gaudy. It's sort of like nouveau riche, isn't it? I think of it often. You know, when you go to a restaurant and it's all, and it's again, it's really, and I'm aware of the sort of the the classist aspect of this and others, but it's I always think of like a sort of very very shiny sort of granity, like a square, like a place setting with like sparkly bits, or someone who's got lots of like love Kylie cushions piled up on their bed that sort of lay on it. You get a sort of imprint of Diamante on the back of your face. <laughs> I always think of some of those. I mean, not that I've ever set foot in any of them, but from what I see in reviews those kind of like Mayfair restaurants where it's like Mm. glass and lots of reflective surfaces and just madly expensive food that isn't even necessarily that good um I I find that really interesting that's the other interesting part I guess of work culture as well because that's I think what so many of us feel that that's the prize we'll win if we Mm keep our head down and ignore all the dreadful things that are happening to us we'll get to to go to the horrible mayfair restaurants and we'll <laughs> feel like we've reached the top no it's true and it's so funny because so many employers kind of use this oh we're all a family who will use a lot of emotive language and manipulation in order to kind of motivate people and get people further but the thing that i always say to myself and say to people you know no matter how good the working relationship is no matter how good you like them, this is a job and you come mm. here to earn money. And I think it really is important that people don't lose sight of that. And and that's something that I think I definitely lost sight of when I was working in advertising, just because the culture there is so sort of all encompassing and people, you know, they end up living together and they end up, you know, dating each other and they end up getting married. And there were so many relationships in the office and they go on holiday together, they hang out at the weekends and you're kind of led to believe that if you're not part of that scene, you're doing something wrong and you won't progress as far in the company, which is actually true. You kind of needed to be on the scene to get far. Um, And I think even now, I'm so much more clear cut about even the professional relationships that I'm really fond of. I'm like, this is business. Um, And and I think more people would, would do well to remember that. I think that's very wise. When you said the idea of, you know, we're like a family here, and I think that's just such a sort of, you know, that is a big old red flag. Mm. I love books about families mm. and that explore that how that dynamic is, can be so tender and joyful, but also so claustrophobic and weird. Do you have any favourite family stories? Do you know, it's really interesting you say that because generally I don't necessarily gravitate towards books about families for whatever reason but there are two that I really love um the first is My Family and Other Animals by Gerard Dahl obviously um which I first read as you know an English assignment um when I was you know at school sort of like year eight or year nine or something so it was like 12 13 and I so remember everyone else in class kind of complaining about this really boring book we had to read and me sort of nodding along being like yeah so rubbish but I loved it and so I was going home and reading it in the evenings and reading ahead and then we'd go into class and I'd have to like reread what I'd or I would just sit there reading skipping ahead in class and just reading ahead because I really did enjoy it and that I find to be a real comfort read and it's such a sort of happy family dynamic and it's also so evocative in terms of place and time and it's just gorgeous so that's something that I sort of have on my shelves and and just return sometimes I even just dip in to like a few chapters because it's just completely transported um so that's one book about families i really love and another that i read more recently is called america is not the heart by uh, elaine castillo and that came out in i think 2018 and it's this kind of beautiful immigrant narrative set in the bay area and it's really you know i as i say i don't gravitate towards family narratives and i i did only read this because my um, agent at the time recommended it to me and sent me a copy and I was like okay well I really trust your taste so why don't I dip into this and I was literally holding back tears by the final pages like I remember sitting there I was reading it over Christmas and thinking Otega you just need to finish the book then you can allow yourself to cry and I just like 10 pages to go it just like completely lost it because it's really really tender and raw and there's kind of like an unexpected love story in there as well but the the core love story in it is about familial bonds and learning to understand each other even if you don't really understand each other and you know 
culture clash and culture difference and it's just it's one of those books that I recommend all the time so I think those are two books about families that I just I really love unexpectedly love oh wonderful and I I don't know that last one at all and you've made me want to go and read it now so good so good Julian Fellows, of all people, there's a line in, I think it's his first novel, Snobs, which I really enjoyed. And there's Mm. a tricky matriarch and her son says when he sort of marries someone unsuitable and they're, you know, quite grand and it's very Julian Fellowsy and they're all trying to make the best of it, but not really. (laughs) And this man says of his mother, she wants me to be happy, but in a way that she can understand, Mm. which I think is all families everywhere and all of that love but also there's no sort of good for her not for me and I think especially with parents you know I was saying this to a friend a while ago who was having a bit of tension with with one of her parents and I just said you know that's actually their way of expressing love and you know from completely different generations completely different upbringings now you know she she's an immigrant um so her parents had a very different upbringing and it was just and she completely understood it but it, I think I'd only come to that realization as well because of, of my own relationship with my parents like I, I you know I don't really go in for stuff like love languages but it is true that they have really different ways um parents often of showing love and they have different ideas of what is best for you but they do ultimately want what is best for you and I think when you get to an age where you realize that I think your relationship with your parents becomes a lot easier and it also requires a bit of maturity on your part to kind of get past those teenage years and to actually kind of show your parents some generosity which I don't think many of us are when we're sort of stroppy teenagers. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back to Otega soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, single Carefree Mellow by my beloved former guest, Catherine Heine. This is Catherine's very first book. It's a collection of bitingly funny short stories, perfect vignettes about love, dating and families, crisp, witty and resonant. I love Dolly Alderton's Everything I Know About Love, and I'm sure you did too. And if you're waiting for the TV show with bated breath like I am, I think you'll eat up these stories with a spoon. Single Carefree Mellow is published by Fourth Estate and out now. Now, back to Otega. A book I read recently and was utterly arrested by, uh, Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason, and it just came out. 
and I think it got sent and it was like, this is the novel of 2021. And as a person who had an, her first novel coming out at the beginning of 2021, <laughs> I think I felt a little bit like, <laughs> <laughs> quite, um, you know, I, I did not handle it well, but um, it made its way onto the pile and it just kept getting mentioned everywhere. And it was sort of burning a hole. And I was, you know, thinking, I just want to get it out of my life. And it floored me. And it's about your adult relationship with your parents and lots mm. of other things and it's about mental illness um oh i have but, heard about this book yeah and it's well it's really unexpectedly very 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 funny too there are moments of sort of lightness amid the darkness um but not to do a, a spoiler but there's a the narrator her father is an unpublished poet her mother is a minor sculptor i think and is described as such and in the broadsheets, and also their aunt married a very wealthy man who sort of lives in Belgravia, and they're funding the the poet and the sculptor and their family, and it's it's really toxic and claustrophobic, <laughs> but very 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 funny. But it's about not. To, I don't want to give anything away, but the narrator really has an awful relationship with her mother and her mother mm. is difficult and dreadful and writes her off and then there is a, a change and a shift and it's really really moving and I found it very comforting and positive and like profound and wise about how that dynamic just keeps evolving and keeps evolving and I think that to a point we do all revert of it a bit I certainly do when I'm with my parents there's a bit of me that is you know a child and a teenager and a nightmare but when you realize that someone is able to see you as who you've become and give you space that's a Mm. magical thing but Mm. also the other side of it is giving them space to see you if you're a person's child you'll never be (laughs) yeah that's the thing it's like once once you kind of realize that that's the dynamic and that's going to you know that will perpetuate throughout generations I think just I mean I you know I'm not a mother so I don't understand what it's like to to have a child but I think understanding that I don't understand that and you know I hear so many of my friends when they when they have children they're like okay now I understand more that sort of fierce protectiveness that my mother had towards me what my parents had towards me even when it felt oppressive so yeah, I, I think as I've gotten older, I've tried to to be more tolerant. And it's really paid dividends in, in my relationship with my parents. So families is not a theme that necessarily gets you excited. What no. are the themes that make you think, oh, yeah, that's for me? <laughs> Money, <laughs> which I hate to sort of be that person, but I really do gravitate towards books about money. So, well, just the, you know, less in a practical way, but just the sharp, interesting dynamic. So I really, really loved um, The Interestings by Meg Wallitzer, which I read uh, last year. And I, I love her writing anyway. I really enjoyed um, The Female Persuasion. That was Because it. I think that's the only Meg Wallitzer I've read and I loved it so much. And again, so, why so have good. I not read The Interesting? Well, The Interestings is even better, honestly. And, and The Interestings came out, I think, quite a bit before. But it's about, you know, a group, a friendship group, you know, we start out with them as teenagers and they're all at this summer camp and it follows them throughout their lives, you know, their 20s, 30s, 40s into middle and, and sort of verging on old age. And their fortunes take really different turns and some become incredibly successful and wealthy and others not so much. And also there is an element of family money enabling certain things and privilege enabling certain things and certain people kind of starting on third base and, and hitting a home run sort of thing so obviously you know that premise really appealed to me because those sorts of dynamics are things I find really fascinating but it so captures that feeling of you know envy and jealousy that you can feel towards certain people in your life who have had a good deal of financial luck and it's something that I talk about in my book as well um and I love that it did that even though it's fiction and my book is non-fiction I don't think that those are emotions that we see explored at length or really um intelligently because on the whole people are still quite embarrassed to admit to it um especially non-fiction in a kind of personal way as as I've done in my book um but you know Meg Wallace's portrayal of it was so spot on um it's just 
it's and also I love books that sort of span not generations necessarily but span you know a couple of decades and you follow people over years because then you're not sort of wondering oh how does that work out for them because you sort of know you know you see them as teenagers and, and you see them right into their 50s so that is a book that I would just really thoroughly recommend and Meg Wallace is such a brilliant writer if I could write like her especially in fiction I would just be I'd, I'd, I'd never work again <laughs> oh well you know I th- is fiction something that you would like to write or have you written I am actually I think my next book will I, I've started working on a book that's a novel. Um, we'll see how it turns out. It's very so much exciting. an experiment. Yeah, it is very exciting. It's a different creative challenge for me. Um, it's very much a sort of personal challenge and a bit of an experiment to see whether it's, you know, worth doing and it's something that I can do well. And, you know, if it is, then maybe maybe you'll read it in a couple of years' time. Well, I would love that. Whenever you say you're working on a book, I'm very excited to hear about it and I am... <laughs> entirely confident you can absolutely give Meg Wolitzer a run for her money. Oh, but... Daisy, that is <laughs> bold words. Well, I will stand by them. <laughs> but I remember that with the female persuasion and being mm. so stunned and yes, and jealous and envious of the way she managed to be so, so smart and perceptive and have mm. this very, you know, there's a real beauty of language and absolute precision and she captured everything so sharply and in such an unexpected way but it was just so spoonable and propulsive and compulsive mm. and because mm. I'm there are definitely there are books that I really have to sort of gear myself up for and I just oh I'm not I'm not smart enough I find this a bit dry it's funny you say that I'm not a fan of super literary fiction if I'm honest and I always feel like you know I don't want to name any names but I always I used to feel slightly embarrassed about that I like literary fiction but there are, you know, a couple of the sort of usual kind of female authors who are, you know, really sort of up there in terms of literary fiction. And I can just never get through any of their books. Um, and so I think for me, I, and I still buy them, I still occasionally read them. I mean, I've got one on my bookshelf now that's on my to be read list because the topic is about money and home ownership. So I'm like, okay, well, I should find this interesting. But, is it a novel? Would you say what it is? Or would you uh, it's, um, oh, well, no, I'll say what it is. It's, um, it's, you know, the third part of Deborah Levy's um, sort of memoir. I think it's called Real Life. And I did see a review of it in The Guardian that I thought, OK, I do actually want to read this, even though I I tried. To, well, I did read The Cost of Living a few years ago. And, and whilst it's very interesting, stylistically, it just wasn't for me. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I kind of have recognised that about, you know, what I find interesting I, I do need, with non-fiction, I need to feel like I'm learning something or getting really kind of insightful cultural commentary. And with fiction, I need a narrative that pulls me along. Um, I, I need a good narrative. Um, and there are so many authors who I think manage to be sort of highbrow. Um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's one, you know, she's brilliant when it comes to plot and narrative and characterization and you still find yourself like flipping through the pages but she's obviously a beautiful writer um and then I really loved Three Women by Lisa today in fact I think that's probably the book that I wish I'd written which is non-fiction but honestly the way it's written it it does come across as almost kind of novelized you you would think it was a novel it was fiction um and you know, I find myself wondering what's what's going to happen to these these I say characters, but real people. They're real. They're real people. Well, we had Lisa today on this podcast, and she told me she almost wishes she hadn't written it. Why? That she wanted it to be this very sort of intimate act of journalism, I guess. And I I think the enormous success of that book, and I think she had a lot of anxiety about being in these women's lives, and what you know when she sort of approach them and what she told them it was going to be and how it was going to pan out I think she feels odd about the scrutiny she sort of exposed them to without knowing that could possibly happen but I think you know it's that sort of very you know her as a a conscientious journalist but Mm. I agree with you in that it was so well written so compelling and I really really loved the breadth of it and that it talked about desire in a more explicit way than I've ever Mm. known. I just thought she was really good at capturing sort of people's interior monologues and inner thoughts and it's really hard to to 
do that convincingly. And I, I suppose in a way she kind of had a leg up in that she's interviewing them and speaking to them a lot. But that's what I most enjoy when I'm reading fiction or non-fiction, but particularly fiction, is where I feel like those kind of inner thoughts and those human insights have really been captured. And I think that's really hard to do in writing. And you know it when you see it. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I, I just loved that book. I think a lot about, is it Lena? So it's, there's Maggie who I think is abused by her teacher and Sloane who seems like the most sort of happy and, you know, has the, the, husband, the most straightforward time of it. And I think yeah. Lena who is, neglected and ignored by her husband and has an affair with her old high school crush but yeah her waiting in the car and just wanting and wanting and also I think as a reader being able to see quite early on where it was going um but knowing that this woman couldn't and sort of knowing I mean if you've if you've dated if you've been around the block a few times you can see where that was going um and just kind of having to watch it unfold and also knowing what that absolutely crushing devastation feels like. And I don't even think I've experienced anything that is on a par with, with what I think she went through and the specifics of her situation, but it's just very tragic to read, but I think necessary. Because what haunted me as well is that she felt so trapped by what she actually wanted versus what she was allowed to want, that sort mm. of on paper her life seems so straightforward and, and sorted out and that the desire she felt wasn't something she understood to be a, a permissible desire it wasn't mm. something she was able to kind of articulate and obviously she found an outlet mm. and an outlet that did emotional damage but that there was all this sense that she should just be be grateful with her her lot and I think you know we've seen that with women in fiction for hundreds of years i mean i really took her story as a bit of a a warning which I, I feel awful saying that because that is obviously a real person's life but you know as a i think i was in my late 20s when i read that but just as a a woman who dates and who dates men i really took that as a warning of of a situation and a dynamic that lack of freedom and that being trapped that I never want to find myself in. I think that's really interesting. And obviously, I think we get so much, there are so many books for practical instructions, but emotional lessons from books. Are there any others, either in fiction or non-fiction, that you've really felt gleaned um, some emotional wisdom from? Yeah, do you know what? I really loved um, The Course of Love by Alain de Botton. I never know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I think um, that sounds right to me. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, and again, I read that years ago, and obviously it's sort of, it charts, you know, the course of this one relationship from, from beginning to, spoiler alert, end. <laughs> but it also weaves in these incredible, incredible insights about human nature and, and love. And it sort of dances between the kind of fiction sort of narrative and then sort of psychological analysis and it goes back and forth and a bit of philosophical analysis it goes back and forth between the two so it's sort of giving you imparting lessons as it goes and again that was a book it's really funny I've always wanted to buy that book for friends when they're getting married but I've resisted it so far because it does end up getting quite depressing and I, and I don't want to be like here's this book but I do think it's a really important book for anyone who is in a relationship or you know getting hitched permanently to read um so maybe i'll i don't know yeah i might hold off on that but it's definitely a book that i would recommend for anyone who is in relationships or wants to be in relationships or that is a feature of their life because it's it's so insightful and it um there's this one insight in it where he talks about you know when you kind of throw a tantrum with your other half or with your partner and when you're annoyed about something and and half of what you're annoyed about is having to explain what you're annoyed about you just want the other person to know and he, I'm paraphrasing massively and he says it in a way that's so much better but I remember reading that I was like oh my god yes like that is part of the annoyance it's like you're annoyed about the thing and then you're annoyed about having to explain why you're annoyed about the thing and it just it's yeah it's really really 
amazing. That's so wise. And I love, I really love books that aren't about, you know, the dramatic, intense highs and lows of grand passion, but just that it is so hard to... It can be so hard. I say this aware that my husband produces Tales in the Room to <laughs> to love someone and live with someone. Like quite often, I think that I'm very lucky and that without wanting to give too much intimate stuff away about my relationship, I don't think there's anything I'm annoyed by on a sort of a personal level. It's just that it is difficult to live with someone in a finite space mm. and do the... Have all the things you talked about in your book and trying to remember that you know when I, and also that knowing that if I find it hard he is finding it hard in a something else but in sort of an equal way mm. uh, there's a book I really love um Wedding Taste I'll Never Give by Ada Calhoun I don't know if you've come across I that know, one I that. Um, she's an American writer and it's the series of essays and the first the book takes its title from a modern love essay she wrote and I think it's about that that so many at weddings that it's all these big grand declarations that like, I will love you stormy seas you know when you're dying I'll be there holding your hand and when the house falls down I will be with you and no, what's quite hard about a long-term relationship is the boring bits and I know this is obviously not to be taken wholesale there are all kinds of situations where you know, it's a relationship, runs its course, and it's really good and important, everyone should feel free to leave. But also her mother's advice, you know, how do you stay married? You don't get divorced. And the sort of simplicity of that, that sometimes it is about (laughs) just getting through the hard bits. But yeah, I find the book very moving and very, very honest and vulnerable, but also quite biting. It's, I suppose, a, a lighter but meaningful counterpoint to three women maybe mm, not a counterpoint mm. but a further reading yeah no and I, I think from what you've said um the course of love sounds sounds really similar in in sort of tone and content um because it's quite funny as well but it's just so spot on I remember sort of taking photos and sending it to friends and it also applies to non-romantic love as well I think the tantrum thing actually really felt true to me in a friendship dynamic as opposed to a romantic one so I think that's um yeah, it's a, it's a must read for everyone, basically. Sounds great. I was thinking about work as well and have it, working with lots of different people um, in a self-employed capacity, how that's something I often think that, you know, if on an email, if I'm taking exception to something or I'm in a very bad mood, that I need to remember that sometimes it's just an issue of clarity and that's on me. Mm. I'm aware that, uh, very sadly, our time together is drawing to a close, but if there are any books that you haven't mentioned that you'd really like listeners to read this summer other than your own wonderful book which I will be <laughs> exhorting them to read um exhorting is that the right word um, I think I do, um but anything that you'd recommend or anything else that you're really excited about maybe making time to read the things that I'm going to be making time to read this summer are I want to reread Americana by Jim Amanda Ngozi Adichie because it's been such a long time since I read that um, and I just kind of want to be absorbed in the beauty of her her craft and her ability. I'm currently halfway through reading Detransition Baby by Tori Peters, which has been really eye-opening for me um, because I think often, so often, when we're talking about sort of trans women or, or trans people, they're kind of still stuck at stage one in terms of literally fighting for the right to exist that I've realised that we we and and probably they aren't able to have conversations about sort of more like life choices like how and if to become a mother because they're still arguing or they're still fighting for the right to just be able to you know have change their passport or something like that and and that I think was really eye-opening for me um I loved that book and it took me by surprise entirely and I loved the irreverence of it and I found it so exhilarating and it's an area I think where I would absolutely entirely describe myself as an ally I don't think it's a trans debate because I think debating someone's Mm. right to you know be free and be happy is like that that is no debate but also Mm. there are things I'm definitely definitely things I'm 
curious about and I wonder about and I feel like it's very hard to to ask those questions when that's become so so polarized mm. and an account of how trans women live and what mm. they face but one that's all and it's not a sort of it's not necessarily a story of harrowing difficult pain of course that's in there it's a life story as as told by a trans woman and I think that is it's it's a life story you know a story of 20s 30s motherhood fatherhood told from trans perspective and I think that's really important you know there are lots of cis women writing about motherhood um and I think it's I'm really glad that that narrative is is now out there so yeah that's kind of on my reading list for the summer wonderful Otega I'm really sad that you have to go and do your I'm event so because sorry. I could do this all day long. No, it's probably really good. Otherwise, it would be like six o'clock. And you're like, can we go now? Like, no, I have no books to ask you about. But like, please, I would love to if you want to come back at any time. I would love that. I really, really would. And I really hope that we can meet in real life and I can toast your brilliant book. And thank, thank you, you for everything you write. Thank you so much, Daisy. Thank you for having me. Huge thanks to Otega. We Need to Talk About Money is published by Fourth Estate and out on the 8th of July. If you're listening on the week of release, that's on Thursday. You can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends. And thank you so much to everyone who has left a five-star review. It is the best way to help other people to discover us and discover new books. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Otega at acast.com slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. We'll be taking a break for a little while. Producer Dale is going to read the whole of Nabokov this summer and I'm going to reread the whole of Jackie Collins. But now I leave you with this from Mark Twain. Good friends, good books and a sleepy conscience. This is the ideal life. See you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.